One thing I have noticed about Zoom, no one knows how to say goodbye. You say goodbye, well, goodbye. Okay, right, nice, okay, goodbye. So long, all right, so long now. All right, talk to you soon, right, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is world-renowned film critic and historian Leonard Moulton, author of Leonard Moulton's Movie Guide. And now, your sexy boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And that means I'm Phil Proctor. And today, we're talking with a friend, Leonard Moulton, who is probably known to you all because Leonard is... Uh, a fabled expert on the movies. I'm sure everybody has a copy of at least one of his reference books in your library. Uh, in fact, I, Leonard, just last night, we looked up some information about The Man Who Fell to Earth, which we were watching. And you said, and I totally agree, that it's a fascinating film for the first two thirds, and then it completely falls apart in the last third. Well, I call him as I see him, you know. I have to say, parting the curtain here, as the wizard did, uh, that that review was written when I saw the movie for the first time. Yeah. Were I to see it again today, I might have a different reaction. And when I started doing this book over a period of years, I, I said, well, I can't rewatch everything every year. I can't, I can't go back and revisit 16,000 movies. Uh, so I just have to live with the fact that these are the impressions I had at the time these films came out. It's the new physics that things are affected by what by people who are watching them happen, right? I can't uh, dispute that. I, I can't dispute anything. I have COVID brain right now. But <laughs> think about how this unprecedented event that we've all experienced is going to manifest itself in the stories that are told and the movies that are made and everything else that's done artistically for years and years and decades to come. It's more than just a reboot. It's a uh, reorientation to life and every aspect of life, including movies. You know what it is? It's a reboot in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Really, things are, are shook up. Yeah. It's like a little earthquake, you know? And and uh, and and the other thing about it is, what about the audiences? Mm -hmm. The audiences are now very limited in movie theaters, and, and we have to talk about the fact that uh, a whole chain of movie theaters, 300 of them, just gave up the ghost, just quit the Pacific movie chain, right? Yep, which includes the specialty Arclight cinemas, uh, which uh, started out as a uh, one-of-a-kind one of in Hollywood, attached to the Cinerama Dome, uh, itself a landmark in uh, in Los Angeles. Yep. And then they were so successful with that operation, which was kind of a high-class movie-going experience. Mm -hmm. It's the movie-going experience the way you want it to be. Yep. Great sight lines, uh, you know, superior projection and sound, uh, a uh, personal welcome from a theater staff member uh, before the, the show begins, limited numbers of... Uh, trailers and a movie that you actually want to see and, and, and high-end 
high-end refreshments, including including uh, uh, drinks for uh, for grown-ups. There's nothing like a drink in your hand while you're watching yeah. watching a film, you know. <laughs> so it was so successful in Hollywood, they 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 built others uh, on the same pattern. One near near you and me, Phil, in Sherman Oaks, California, and uh, another one in the South Bay area. Yep. That's right. We have one here in um, in Santa Monica. Yeah, beautiful one. Yeah, and and it would they would do special events. It kind of reminded me of the Ziegfeld Theater in New York. R.I.P. A moment of silence for Ziegfeld, where I said I had some of my most memorable movie going experiences. I saw Apocalypse Now at the Ziegfeld, and I will never forget it. I went to the very first showing of Apocalypse Now at the Ziegfeld. It, wow. It was a noon show in the middle of the week. I, I was working at WPIX in New York in the Daily News building, and I took off, and it was a hot summer day, and I was in a cab, and it was I was held up in the cab because someone had been shot to death in front of Grand Central Terminal. I saw him lying there. Ah, New York. Oh, I miss it. I get there in time. It's hot, and then a helicopter started. Oh, man. And that sensory experience... Uh, with those helicopters was just mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, it really was. I came out of the movie, and I was stunned. Mm -hmm. I just realized, I have to go home. I, there's nothing more I can say or or think about. I went home, and again, it was a hot day. I laid down in my bed, and of course, I had a ceiling fan right over my head. <laughs> 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 thump, 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 thump. My wife and I had a, a different kind of experience uh, at the Ziegfeld when we were first married, living in Manhattan, uh, we were curious about a movie that we heard, heard nothing but bad things about called Honky Tonk Freeway, directed by John Schlesinger. Yeah. <laughs> with a motley cast of uh, characters. And uh, we wanted to see it. We were curious. So we, we looked it up, as one used to do, in the newspaper to see what time it was playing. And there was an 8 o'clock show on Saturday night. And we went there, and we were one of something like eight people in that 3,000-seat <laughs> theater. Uh, and we sat through Honky Tonk Freeway, and uh, it satisfied our curiosity, if not our desire to see a good movie. And when it was over, we, we left, and we realized we should have stayed to see if they ran it again as scheduled at 10 o'clock. Or if no one showed up, did they show it anyway? It's like the tree falling in the forest. Does there have to be a 10 o'clock show? With a movie? No, there, there doesn't. But I worked in uh, a production of The Cherry Orchard. Abe Vigoda was with us when we had a, a, a blizzard, and uh, we did the show. But afterwards, he said, uh, you know, this happened to me before in another play I was doing. And one woman who had come early to the show was the only person in the audience. <laughs> now, Equity says if the cast outnumbers the audience, you don't have to do the show. <laughs> but they had nowhere to go. It was a blizzard, right? So the cast says, would you like to see the show? And she says, okay. Okay. <laughs> They did the entire entire two-act play for her. And afterwards, you said, well, what did she do? She said, well, she applauded nicely and said, that was very nice. Thank you. <laughs> so so there you are. Not with movies. But the, the fact that there are so few people in the audience is not unusual these days, mm -hmm. even before COVID. Yeah. And this is a revolutionary time. 
and I really would love to know, Leonard, what you think might be the next iteration. Is it is it going to be people are going to write just for the home theater? If I had an answer to that, I could make a lot of money. <laughs> As we speak, we're a couple of weeks away from the first real box office weekend in over a year when King Kong and Godzilla made almost $50 million over one weekend. Now, that's serious money. That's monster money, yes. That's right. In a non-COVID time, uh, that might have been doubled or tripled. Given that it's at a time when theaters are still on the cusp of reopening and people are still you know, concerned about going out in public and all that, that's a lot of money. And what it said to me was, A, people want to go out to the movies. And B, people really like the idea of a communal experience. And that is going back to the, you know, sitting around the campfire telling stories. That's a truism that I don't think is going to be uh, undermined, even by, by something as dramatic as our pandemic. And, and these companies like Pacific Theaters and AMC and Regal, all the big chains have been hemorrhaging money for a year. Yeah. It's been against the law <laughs> to open a movie theater. I can't imagine another occasion when that has been true for such a you know prolonged period of time. Wow. Good grief. So I don't know. I mean, there's a James Bond movie sitting on the shelf waiting to be released. There's a... Uh, a Marvel Black Widow movie sitting on the shelf waiting to be released. These are films with huge audience appeal. Mm -hmm. They're not the kind of films I get, you know, all excited about, but if they're, they're good, I, I, I like them too. Uh, I, I tend to prefer quieter, more thoughtful films, but there's room for everything. And variety is the spice of life. And I've actually been enjoying independent films, the documentaries, the foreign language films that have been released, if not to brick and mortar theaters, then to platforms of home viewing. The options, it's just an entirely different world. The theatrical business has always been fueled by the youth. Yeah. And if they have weaned off of the theatrical experience just by evolving into personalized screens, I just wonder if the pandemic just hastened the inevitable which is a shame because there's nothing like seeing a fully projected image. There's just no impression like that. With people enjoying it alongside you. Exactly. With people, people surrounding you. I'm, as they say, cautiously optimistic that even young people who are well accustomed to watching things, as you say, on a personal screen or at home, will be lured away from home by a Marvel movie, a James Bond movie, some sort of a crowd pleaser that has always proved reliable for drawing an audience opening weekend. I don't think that's going to drastically change. Theatrical experience also enhances the escapism of a movie. With no distractions, you are a captive audience. Exactly. You're in the dark mm -hmm. and the screen is larger than life. That, that, that's all of that matters in the way you absorb a movie. That's why I think the Cinerama Dome will come back because uh, you you just you're right you just can't replicate that experience at home. Uh, who wants to stay home all the time? <laughs> Whether you're a kid or a boomer like us, uh, you know, do you want to be home all the time? Well, after the past thirteen months, I'd say, especially no. 
there's something called the cave syndrome now for people who are like phobic about going back out. We're all going to have to uh, undergo this readjustment True. to living our lives uh, and uh, and putting on pants. <laughs> there's going to be a real transition period, and, and a lot of people will find it tough to do, including me. That's right, the new abnormal. When we spoke about a year ago, when this is all starting, you said that you know you had piles and piles of DVDs and movies at home that you, you needed to get through, and this was going to be your perfect opportunity to uh, finally get through your collection. How did that work out for you? Fairly well, mm -hmm. but we also started watching more television and more uh, streaming television. And we binged some shows at the early boomer part of my, <laughs> my existence. I was a TV junkie. As a kid growing up, I was addicted to television. And I, I got out of that habit around the time I went to college. And I just haven't gotten back into that habit of watching a lot of TV. Uh, but now I am back because there are so many options, so many choices. My God, there's over 400 series on the air. It's coming into its own as a new medium, I think, the, the streaming quasi-movie television experience. And binging, yeah. it's almost like seeing a 30-hour feature now. Perry Mason remake on HBO. I mean, these are like theatrical movies. Each and every one of yeah. these episodes are spectacularly produced. Yes, yes. The French show Call My Agent on Netflix. Have, have you seen that? No, I haven't yet. Oh, let me heartily yeah? recommend okay. it to you. Okay. Uh, the, it had four seasons, and it's just a delightful show about a talent agency in Paris. And in every episode, real French movie stars and filmmakers appear. They do cameo appearances as themselves. And and uh, sometimes more than cameos, sometimes they're the actual uh, subject of that, that episode. Uh, very, very entertaining show. My wife, Melinda, and I have been spending a lot of time watching old movies from the 30s, 40s, mm -hmm. 50, you know? Yep. And, and that really cools you down. That black and white, that wonderful ensemble feeling, the great stars, the beautiful cinematography and the music and the dancing. And, the, and that, that has been a, 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 a kind of a healing uh, escape for us during this time. That's my normal MO. I watch a lot of old movies. Uh, last night, Alice and I watched The Ghost and Mrs. Muir oh. uh, with uh, Gene Tierney and Rex Harrison. Yes. And George Sanders, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz and written by Philip Dunn, based on a novel. Wow. And uh, with music, God, the most gorgeous music score by Bernard Herrmann. Oh. Just exquisite. It boggles my mind that they could make these movies you know, kind of on an assembly line uh, yeah. in, in these great studios, right? And and whenever there's a mob scene or a, a, a war scene, those are real people, thousands of real people. There's no CGI involved, you know? Yes. <laughs> it, it takes my breath away. It really does. And, and in the Depression era, in the 40s too, seven major studios releasing a movie every week. The numbers are simply staggering. I heard a, uh, a wonderful story about Louis B. Mayer, the uh, legendary chieftain of uh, MGM. He was back in New York and he attended a cocktail party. And uh, there was a fellow who was uh, a literary sort 
who was a bit snobbish about movies. And uh, Mayer said, well, even you will have to admit that uh, every year we make uh, two or three films that are, are really good. And the man said, yeah, I'll give you that. And Mayer said, well, we don't have to. <laughs> even in that assembly line uh, world of Hollywood, movie making at that, at that time, there was room for individuality. There were some writers and directors and producers who were able to give the studio what it wanted mm -hmm. and provide a finished product that checked all the boxes, but still express something personal. Frank Capra, Leo McCary, Preston Sturges, Billy Wilder, uh, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. list is, is surprisingly long. I don't know about the Gen Xers. I don't know if they're getting hip to the fact that there is such a treasure of cultural information and entertainment available to them. You know, I'm curious. You're teaching a course, aren't you, at USC? Yes. It's my 23rd year teaching this course. Uh, and the course itself is, is even older than that. Uh, it started in the early 60s and uh, was the brainchild of a man named Arthur Knight, who was a prominent film critic of that time. Yep, I recognize And who wrote him. a book called The Liveliest Art that was the first uh, compact one-volume history of the movies. Mm -hmm. He approached USC and said, you know, we're, we're here in the heart of the movie business. Why don't we invite uh, filmmakers uh, to come here and show their latest film and... Uh, uh, sit for a question and answer panel. George Lucas took this course. Huh. Uh, Ron Howard took this course. <laughs> so the, it has a history of its own. Alfred Hitchcock was a guest in this class. Mm. Uh, and so was John Cassavetes. Arthur taught it for a good number of years and then retired. And I am the latest custodian of this class. Well, bravo, bravo. Oh, one quick aside. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I enjoy about watching, particularly TCM, is that they show these old movie shorts every once in a while. Oh, yes. And I just saw Frank Sinatra singing the, his, the patriotic number, That's America to oh. Me, right? And yes. it's all about diversity. The house you know, I live in. Yeah, the house I live in and the, the postman down the street and, the, and, and all about this diversity about well, it doesn't matter what color this is. And he's singing it to a group of entirely white boys. Oh, no, no, there's one black boy there. Oh, is there? It was shot in 1945, and he got a special Academy Award for doing this show. Oh. To, to promote tolerance. And in the late 50s, early 60s, I saw it as a student in a public school in New Jersey. Wow. They were still using it for its intended purpose. Right. Uh, uh, except for one thing. He's talking about a a bomber crew, a famous bomber crew from from wartime, and how uh, there was a Jewish guy from Brooklyn yeah. and an Irish guy from Milwaukee, you know, all that kind of thing. Right. Uh, right. And uh, to bomb the Japs. Yeah, right. Uh, bomb the Japs. So <laughs> there's, you know, and of course, it was made during the war. Oh, that's right. And during wartime, what do we tend to do as humans? We tend to demonize the enemy. Uh, it happened, you know, remember the Ayatollah, mm -hmm. vicious caricatures, you know. Dehumanize them. That's the only way you can hate enough to justify killing is if you dehumanize. That's right.
but it's an unfortunate <laughs> reference in an otherwise beautiful short subject. That's a very contentious and interesting issue, isn't it? About, you know, yes. films that were made at a certain time that express a certain cultural vision of that time. I mean, for instance, one of the shorts I saw was minstrel shows. Mm -hmm. The history of minstrel shows, you know? Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that yourself, being a, an historian in art? This is a uh, hot topic, as you well know. And uh, TCM has done a, an excellent uh, filler piece, runs probably runs 15 minutes, about the use of blackface. Mm -hmm. And it traces its history from the minstrel shows into vaudeville and then to movies. They don't apologize for it. They don't uh, defend it either. They just explore it with Jacqueline Stewart, who uh, is now one of the hosts on, uh, on TCM, uh, who's an African-American. And uh, Donald Bogle, another African-American, an old friend of mine, who is a scholar of black performers and black filmmakers. And uh, it's uncomfortable to watch some of these clips. And uncomfortable for me, I'm a Caucasian. <laughs> I grew up watching these films on TV and in revival theaters and not, not thinking twice about some of these moments in films. Uh, Fred Astaire uh, is in modified blackface mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for a number called The Bojangles of Harlem in my favorite Astaire Rogers movie, Swing Time. Yeah. I've seen that film over and over again since I was a teenager. And, and I, I love it. I love it too. I love it. But now you can't show it without commenting and without contextualizing uh, that sequence. And the same is true of many other films, too many to name. What I find intriguing is how much we're going to have to bend into a pretzel to explain stuff to younger people who come along and encounter these things like uh, sexism, mm. uh, casual sexism, a boss chasing a, a woman around the desk, you know, a secretary around the desk uh, for comic effect. Yeah, some guy slapping some, some woman, yeah. Yeah, there's so many things. I mean, the Me Too movement has revolutionized, at about time, revolutionized our attitudes and our uh, awareness mm -hmm. of how women have been treated and discussed and depicted. So it's not just a racial thing or an ethnic thing. We're contending with changes in society. And the movies are set in stone. We can't change them. We can't alter them. We, I think most sensible people don't want to alter them. Or, and thank goodness, Turner Classic Movies has taken the stand that they will not bury them, won't lock them away in a vault. That, I think that's the right attitude. We stumbled across a film starring Doris Day and Danny Thomas about a, a songwriter, famous songwriter. Yeah, Gus Kahn. Yeah, right. There's a scene at the end, near, well, I guess, the middle of the movie, where Doris Day is doing a song in blackface, and after after the the number is over, she's with Danny, and she puts a record on, which is like uh, "Rockabye Baby," okay, and and Danny realizes she's telling him she's going to have a baby, and he says, "I wonder what color it will be," <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. I know. Ha ha ha. Oh, oh, oh. 
Yes, yes. And yet that wasn't done. I mean, you have to say that wasn't done with malice. No, it was just colorblind. And it was comedy, you know? Yeah. A joke. It's why so many people these days get called on the jokes that they did. Jay Leno just apologized recently for his anti-Asian jokes, you know. And uh, that's good, but, but it is an evolution. It's an evolution in culture. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with our special guest, Leonard Malton. We'll be right back. Bob Dylan's back with the biggest surprise of all. He's learned to sing, sing real good and real high class. He's singing opera, that's right. It's Bob Dylan at the Met. Hear Bobby singing Oreos from Scorsese, Coppola, B-Day, all in Barbarian and German. It's just like the 60s. You can't understand a word Bob is singing, and that's when he's at his best. It's a beautiful album with pictures of Bob wearing a turban, a cowboy hat, a yarmulke, and a crown of thorns. And who's that singing the love duet with him from Car Wash? Joan Baez. Jim Neighbors. So if you're a Dylan, And who wasn't? Here's one record you won't have to take to church and smash with a hammer. Available at Crap's Last Tapes, the Cutout Circus, and all 93 shoplifters markets. It's Bob Dylan at the Met. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Shows, go to SexyBoomerShow.com. And press the subscribe button in your podcast player to know when a new episode drops. Back to Phil and Ted and their special guest, renowned movie critic and historian, Leonard Malton. We're back. We're talking with a friend, Leonard Malton. As you've said, Leonard, when you look back at the era of the 1950s films, the great epics, they're not necessarily the ones that are remembered. It was the B pictures, the sci-fi pictures, the ones that were cultural touchstones that resonated with a quarter of the budget. Look at the Academy Award winners from the 50s and first portion of the 1960s. I'm a film like Ben-Hur, let's say, which won more Oscars, I think, than any other movie up to that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it, it's not a, it's not a, it's a pretty good movie, actually. Yeah. Uh, at the time, they thought it was a great movie. I, I don't think you find too many people uh, uh, taking that vociferous uh, stand for mm. for Ben Hur, which is extremely well crafted. Yes. And of course, the chariot race holds up phenomenally well. That is an exceptional piece of movie making. And again, without CGI, uh, what you see is what you get. So, on the level of sheer craft, it's superior. But one of the films that we really find intriguing from the 50s, it's the films that had to sort of subvert their intentions through disguise. Martin Scorsese calls it smuggling. Hmm. He says filmmakers, directors are smugglers. So they're smuggling some idea in the guise of a science fiction film, in the guise of a film noir, in the guise of a Western uh, a la High Noon, or the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And so it's those films that, uh, that I think survived the years in better shape than the so-called prestige pictures of that period. Body Snatchers, for example, was in the height of the Cold War. These were anti-communist statements. Mm-hmm. Is that how you see it? Well, I interviewed uh, the director, Don Siegel, uh, at the Telluride Film Festival some time ago after a screening of it. He made light of that. He didn't think that was necessarily what they had in mind, but he wasn't the writer. And uh, Hmm. it's possible that 
he interpreted it in a different way. But you can't help but think about the uh, communist witch hunts of that era and apply it to Invasion of the Body Snatcher. And I felt, by the way, at the time when I was working for a television show, that uh, some of my producers were pods, if you remember the movie. <laughs> in Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's film, and then the, the first sequel, Dawn of the Dead, we did a documentary when he was filming it, uh, The Dawn of the Dead. And he said at the time, it was his take on consumerism, the mindlessness of consumerism. Mm-hmm. So that final act of the movie where they're in the mall throwing pies in each other's face happened for two reasons, because it seemed like an absurd scene. To him, it was the ultimate in consumerism, these people just shuffling around a mall in a zombie state. It was also because he sold all his territories uh, for distribution ahead of time, and they had a surplus of money and film to shoot, so they decided to just go ahead and shoot the pie scene for fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so you never know. Exactly. And sometimes you can read too much into a movie and project your own ideas. Leonard and I discovered the other day that we took the same film course in New York at the New School with Ralph Rosenblum, who was a great film editor. It was my favorite course I ever took in school. It was the most eye-opening experience of my life as a film buff. I mean, it's worth, worth talking about a little bit how Ralph Rosenblum was. Ralph Rosenblum was pretty much acknowledged as the top film editor based in New York City. He did everybody's first movie. He did... Mel Brooks' first movie, The Producers. He did Robert Benton's first movie, uh, Bad Company. Wow. He did Harold Prince's first movie, Som Something for Everyone. And of course, Woody Allen's first movie, Take the Money and Run. And then they clicked, and he uh, subsequently edited all of Woody Allen's films up through Annie Hall. Hmm. He also did uh, William Friedkin's, I guess, second movie, The uh, Night They Raided Minsky's. And... Uh, uh, after Friedkin walked away from that film and it was considered unreleasable, uh, Ralph got to work on it <laughs> and made it uh, uh, made it playable. And uh, and he and he told he had great stories about all of these experiences. Yeah. And he would show us the film on a sixteen millimeter print. At first, he'd talk about his experience in general. Then he'd show us the movie and we'd talk a little more. And then the, the second week when we'd come back. He'd show us the movie again, but stop after every sequence and discuss uh, the, the options and the choices and the decisions that went into all the, uh, the editorial moves that he made. Wow. What a, an illuminating experience. Phil, what was so fascinating about it was, so this was just a course in the catalog at New School in New York. Yeah was the aesthetics of film editing. So I wanted to learn theory. And there were only about eight of us. And we were in his one-bedroom apartment-turned-studio on 8th Avenue. Very, very informal and small. And he would just talk. And he was cutting Love and Death. So the stuff was all over the room while he was cutting when he had us over every Tuesday night for three hours. Wow. He would just say, you can get away with so much more in comedy, for example. He says, when I cut everything you want to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. The scene with Woody in the inflatable outfit where he sh it, someone punctures a hole and he's shooting like a rocket across a pond. He said, I cut right to a, a, a cave with a, an old VW bug. It made no sense whatsoever. He said, I could never get away with that in drama, but I could do it in comedy. Yeah. Fortunately, he put all that down in writing in, in a book uh, called When the Shooting Stops. Hmm. If we have piqued anybody's curiosity, 
you can read in this book all of these. They're more than anecdotes. They're, they're life experiences and uh, uh, hard-earned wisdom that, uh, that he imparted to us. If anyone's interested in understanding how to craft a story, whether it's in film or, or audio or whatever you do, even writing, it's worthwhile to hopefully read his book to get his wisdom because mm -hmm. the first thing I believe he said to us was, if you're good at this, your work's invisible. You should never see my work. Yeah. Again, going back to that era of the 70s, we had Neil Israel on, and he told a story about how Americathon got made, which was basically uh, the, his script was passed through a girlfriend to a studio head in bed. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about how that was the way Hollywood used to be. And in the 70s, because television had eviscerated the business and it was a sort of a desperate situation, uh, it bred opportunity. And some of these movies that were made back in those days, like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, some of these extraordinary films were greenlit because there wasn't a middleman bureaucracy in, in the film business at that point like there is now. It was like you could go talk to the studio head and if they liked, they did it. That's correct. There weren't focus groups and it wasn't debated to death and watered down. And Do you agree with that? Well, yes. In the late 80s, the Telluride Film Festival had a uh, fascinating panel discussion about what they were calling what they dubbed the Silver Age of movies, uh, which is the early to mid 70s. And they had uh, a number of people there representing different facets of movie making. The producer Saul Zentz, who uh, financed a lot of really good movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Peter Bogdanovich, uh, who was a key player in the, in the 70s in Hollywood. Michael Ritchie, an underappreciated filmmaker who made uh, The Candidate, with Robert Redford, a lot of other good movies. It was like nine or 10 significant people on this, on this stage. And someone asked Michael Ritchie what the single biggest difference between making movies then, late 80s, and in the Silver Age in the early to mid-70s was. And he said, just what you said, he said, middle management, that's the biggest change, is that in the early 70s, you pitched your idea to a studio head and he or she, mostly they were he, he said, uh, yeah, let's make it. And you knew where you stood. Yeah. It may be a, something of a simplification, but not very much. It's the case when you go back and look at a lot of the most memorable films of that period. And, and to this day, when I interview young filmmakers, as I do in my class at USC, and ask what their influences are, they all point to that period of the 70s. Hmm. That's their touchstone. Uh -huh. The 70s were the flowering of Robert Altman, and the early films of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Francis Coppola. What a flowering of talent, amazing talent, writing and directing. Yeah, yeah. I just finished reading uh, Mark Harris's wonderful new biography of Mike Nichols. Nichols, of course, is a, an avatar of that new Hollywood. His first film was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was one of the... Yep. Uh, pivotal films in bringing to an end the motion picture production code. That's right. And breaking the, the barriers that kept Hollywood from embracing adult subject matter and adult language and sex, and even violence, all of which were still taboo. Here, not in Europe. That's right, here. And, uh, and then he went on to make uh, The Graduate, a seminal 
film of, of its time. Astonishing. Going back to the Legion of Decency, the Hayes Code, back in the 20s when there was a major self-regulation in the movie business to prevent federal intervention, do you think that with the woke movement, of which much of it is a healthy growth, yeah. do you feel that there's any uh, parallels to a, an age of self-censorship right now, um, of political correctness taken to the extreme? Sure. Mm -hmm. Woke culture has given birth to cancel culture. And cancel culture is one of my pet peeves right now. <laughs> and I have to tiptoe, even in talking to you guys and your audience, I have to weigh my words very carefully, uh, lest I, you know, fall into a, a trap, mm -hmm. get attacked, speaking my mind. It's a very thorny issue. The extremes of that would be to say, you can't watch films now from the 60s or 70s because they're offensive, mm -hmm. and therefore they should be disappeared. They'll be canceled. They never existed. Exploitation film never happened. So you're denying actual pieces of history. Mm -hmm. What benefit is that? Is that to say we're not adult enough to self-regulate our, <laughs> our taste? Where is the line here? It's a blurry line, and that line keeps moving. Eventually the pendulum will, if not swing back, uh, you know, make its way back to a, a center of position and sanity will ultimately prevail, I hope. <laughs> There's pretty edgy, uncomfortable, intense stuff that you can see all the time on any number of streaming services and in the cinema. So, yeah, true. Is it even real? It's real if you talk about Woody Allen. Yeah. It's real if you talk about uh, Song of the Sound. Yeah. Uh, it's real if you talk about Gone with the Wind now. Mm -hmm. It's real if you talk about D.W. Griffith, who made The Birth of a Nation, 1915. With the Klan. Last year, or maybe the year before, there's an arts center at Bowling Green. Is it called Bowling Green State University in Ohio? There's an arts center named for Lillian Gish, the actress who got her start with D.W. Griffith in the earliest days of motion pictures and remained a formidable and uh, wonderful actress to advanced age. Well, a student group decided that they wanted to take her name off this arts center because she appeared in The Birth of a Nation. Oh, that's ridiculous, isn't it? That's called guilt by association. She didn't write or direct that film. Uh, she appeared as an actress in that film, among many others. That's how absurd it can get. It's a very strange world out there. It's not progressive. No, it's the opposite of progressive. It's repressive. Oh, yes. And you have a podcast called Malton on Movies. Yes, we do. And we have all of our backlog available, free of charge, as they say. One of our guests was a certain Philip Proctor. Yes. Oh, my. I've heard of him. Yeah. We've had a wide range of guests. Mel Brooks, mm. the late Carl Reiner. Amy Adams, wonderful actress. Lovely actress. We'll put a link to your podcast on our page uh, so people can find you. Oh, please do. Thank you very much. And you're on Turner Classics Movies. Yeah, every now and then I pop up without warning. <laughs> the most recent evening I did for them was evening of unsung movies, underappreciated movies. And I picked five at random with one of their regular hosts, Dave Carter. We discussed the films and uh, got a nice reaction to it too yeah i'd like to see much more of you on that channel i i don't know uh who do we have to sleep with leonard <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Leonard, thank you so much for coming on the Sexy Boomer Show. Well, I, I don't know if that means I'm a sexy boomer or just the show is a sexy boomer show. Oh, yes. No, we only interview sexy boomers. Well, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it where I can get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Leonard. Thank you, guys. Fun to talk to you both. Take care. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was delightful. Just great. If you'd like to hear more of our show, come to our website, sexyboomershow.com. We have a number of episodes with some really interesting folks. You can also find it, of course, on all your favorite podcast platforms. And if you're listening to it, say, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just hit the little subscribe button on the player. That way, you will get a notification whenever we drop a new episode. We want to thank the generous donors out there to keep us afloat and going, especially a dear friend, Edgar Bullington who also happens to be the president of the Funny Names Club of America <laughs> and has been a friend of the Firesign Theater, a dear friend, as we call him, for decades. And I, I, I'm so grateful to you, Edgar, that you're supporting our show. I love you. If you'd like to do the same, just go to our show website, sexyboomershow.com, and you can donate. And if you donate $20 or more, we will send you a fabulous Sexy Boomer bumper sticker. On a car. Yeah, of, of your choice. You've gotten lucky, haven't you, Phil? Oh, I, I get followed very often by uh, attractive-looking policewomen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Phil. Well, we look forward to the next show. Yeah. Stay tuned. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Leonard Moulton. Bob Dylan at the Met was written and performed by the Firesign Theater. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a Ernest Guy. Stay tuned for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man.